You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hi, everyone. My name is Frank Alm, and I'd like to introduce you to our roundtable discussion on the tensions between Japan and South Korea and new and creative approaches for resolving these tensions. This roundtable is also meant as a launch event for the USIP essay series that is examining this exact issue. So let me start with a little background, and then I'll introduce the speakers before I turn it over to them. As many of you know, South Korea and Japan normalized relations in 1965, but there are unresolved bilateral disputes that continue to undermine genuine reconciliation and cooperation. Past efforts to help improve relations, whether between the two countries or trilaterally with the United States, have generally emphasized a future-oriented approach that focuses on common security and economic interests. However, the lack of a fundamental and permanent resolution to the historical grievances has also meant that the bilateral unease continues to linger with periodic flare-ups of heightened friction. The areas of historical tension between the two countries range widely, including over the name of the body of water separating Japan and the Korean Peninsula, sovereignty over a group of rocky islands between the two countries, the legality of Japan's colonization of Korea from 1910 to 1945, and the treatment of sexual slaves, also known as comfort women, by the Japanese military during the wartime period. And these historical grievances often extend into other non-historical disputes, such as Japan's decision to release wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant in 2021, or its tightening of export controls on chemicals necessary for South Korea's semiconductor industry in 2019. The most recent flashpoint for bilateral friction was a 2018 decision by the South Korean Supreme Court that required two Japanese companies to compensate a group of Korean forced laborers from the wartime period. This decision directly challenged the Japanese government's view that the 1965 claims agreement between the two countries had settled all claims completely and finally. Today, the two sides are in negotiations to reach an agreement that will reconcile on one hand, the laborers desire for compensation and an apology, and on the other, the Japanese government and companies desire to reaffirm that all claims have already been settled by previous agreements. Without a fundamental resolution, to this and other historical issues, the potential for future-oriented bilateral cooperation on a whole host of matters will likely be suboptimal. And for the U.S. in particular, poor relations between its two closest regional allies not only remains an irritant, but also a direct threat to the goal of developing a network of allies in the region, as well as achieving integrated deterrence as a part of its Indo-Pacific strategy. So it's with this dilemma in mind that the U, uh, that USIP launched an essay series that would explore new and creative approaches to uh, finding an enduring solution to this problem. We invited subject matter experts uh, to offer a fresh perspective on the challenge, either by uh, examining a new approach or taking a creative 
uh, view on an existing approach. And in particular, the goal was to examine ideas that could have practical value for policymakers. There are around 14 uh, total authors in this series, and we've already published nine of their essays. Uh, five of the authors are with us today to share their thoughts. So let me go ahead and introduce them now. First, we have Dan Snyder, who is a lecturer in East Asian Studies at Stanford University. Next is Tim Webster, who is a professor of law at Western New England University. Then we have Alexis Dutton, who is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Next is Jonathan Miller, who is a senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific program at the McDonnell Laurier Institute in Canada. And last, we have Nathan Park, who is an international litigation lawyer and a non-resident fellow at the Sejong Institute in South Korea, as well as the Quincy Institute. I've asked each of the speakers to talk for around five minutes on the current situation, as well as uh, any major takeaways from their essays. And then I'll have some questions for them for another 25 minutes. After that, we'll open it up uh, for audience Q&A in the remaining 30 minutes or so. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dan. Dan, uh, your mic is muted. A classic moment. Um... I, I'm, first of all, I, uh, it's an honor to be here with so many distinguished scholars and experts on this and in the company of this large group of people that uh, the U.S. Institute for Peace has gathered. And I really want to uh, praise Frank Ohm and the USIP for organizing this project. I think it's a, a really overdue and important uh, effort. And this is a difficult subject. I've been dealing with it for a long time. I do think that first of all, I just want to make some sort of overview remarks, maybe particularly since I'm starting off here. There's no question that the downturn, the current downturn in Japan-Korea relations has really been perhaps the worst in some ways since the normalization of relations in 1965. It's a matter of serious concern, not only to the two countries, but to the United States, which as Frank pointed out, is a security partner and ally of both of these countries. So, that's one important benchmark. The other is that we are actually at a moment of opportunity, despite these the downturn that has taken place. We have uh, governments in both countries who have an interest, not necessarily at the same level, in trying to tackle this issue and bring some kind of improvement in relations and maybe some effort to deal with the underlying uh, issues that, that Frank uh, outlined. Um, this is taking place while there's a global crisis triggered by the war in Ukraine, one that's, uh, I think, engaged also people in East Asia, certainly the Japanese and the Koreans who are looking at this uh, as a serious threat to the to, to world order and one that can affect their own security in East Asia. And lastly, I think it, this all takes place under the uh, umbrella of the kind of security tensions which are rising on the peninsula, unfortunately, in recent days. And so that tends to reinforce at least the idea that there are shared security interests between Japan and Korea and the United States. That said, as this premise of this project makes clear, and I've repeated this endlessly when I, both in my writing and in talking to, uh, particularly to people in Washington, there is no way to make progress on Japan-Korea relations if you simply focus on the shared security environment, shared interests, and so on. If you ignore the underlying issues of history, uh, the things that create 
tension between Japan and Korea, which are fundamental uh, issues that are tied to their sense of national identity, you can't really ultimately uh, make progress. You can make incremental progress, but it all, almost always rolls back on you. So I don't believe in a you know future-oriented approach that ignores history. It, it, it simply, uh, in some ways, makes the problem worse. So the other thing I like to say is that there are solutions, and I love the array of discussion that in this essay series because it proves that it's not a lack of ideas and solutions to these particular problems that is uh, halting progress. It's a lack of political will, first of all. And I think the, uh, the more you can come up with creative ideas, the more not only can you fuel the, the process of, of negotiation, but also you encourage outside actors, and this is one of the things I address in my essay, that is people outside the governments themselves in civil society who really need to engage uh, uh, that with each other. The, you cannot make progress simply at a government-to-government -government level when you're talking about reconciliation. And there's been a real, I think, inward collapse, if you will, of this type of civil society engagement compared to some previous eras. I mean, they were historians are not talking to each other in the way they used to. Uh, I think the engagement between media is very important. Uh, students, student exchanges of one kind or another, which were taking place, are not taking place. These are the areas where you can actually create an environment in which governments uh, can make progress. I, one of the ideas that I promoted uh, or suggested is uh, popular culture. I mean, this is a real opportunity when you look at the role of Korean pop culture on, uh, uh, on these big platforms like Netflix and so on, to do some joint Korean-Japanese television or film productions that deal with these history issues in a dramatic sense. And I think those, those are actually reach bigger audiences. So that that's, a, that's sort of my minor contribution to this, but I want to come back to this idea of what's going on. I think at the moment, I think the the Korean and Japanese governments are negotiating with each other on the issue of forced labor. And there's a pretty substantial negotiation that's taking place between, as far as I understand it, uh, at a foreign minister level, director general, foreign ministry level. And I think they're fairly close to an agreement. It may not be an agreement that will satisfy everybody, but it has to satisfy, first of all, the victims themselves and their representatives. And the, the current idea, and others will, I'm sure, have more to say about this, is to use an existing fund, one that was formed in 2014, to uh, deal with the victims of uh, forced labor, uh, and which has contributions from Korean companies, particularly from POSCO, which based on the idea that they had received significant funding out of the 1965 claims agreement. But the Korean side insists, rightly, I think, that you can't simply go ahead with uh, compensation from Korean firms, that sort of indirect compensation. It has to include voluntary contributions from Japanese companies and explicit statements uh, of remorse. And in some sense, the Japanese government has to make it clear that this is taking place with its support and approval. I think that type of agreement is within reach, but it, it both the governments involved, Japanese government, 
Korean government are extremely weak, politically weak, uh, not because of this, but because of other things. So the room they have to maneuver is pretty small. And uh, in that context, I think the role of the United States is very important. Uh, United, and I, I've yet to see it clearly indicated that the Biden administration, which I think has been very supportive of the idea of trilateral cooperation, is willing or ready to intervene on this issue to try and bring this to a close. These governments need some outside bolstering. And I think in that sense, Kishida, Kishida's cautiousness towards this, Yun is clearly committed to this process, Kishida less so, is also not helpful. It doesn't give President Yun the room he needs to try and make an agreement. So let me, let me stop there, and there's I'm sure we'll have lots to discuss as we go on. Again, great thanks to Frank and to the USIP. Dan, thank you so much for raising the potential agreement that is in the works. Um, it's a perfect segue into Tim because he, he's written about past conciliation agreements and some of the helpful uh, elements uh, for successful agreements. Tim. Sure. Thank you. Uh, and thanks, Dan, for setting the table for us. And thanks to Frank and to your colleague, Lucy Stevenson-Yang, and others at the USIP for putting this together. It's a it's a great initiative, and I, I hope it uh, it gets the attention that I think it really deserves. Um, I want to pick up uh, with something. I'll, I'll make three points. The first point is one that Dan Schneider just made, but I'd like to echo it, which is that this should be a top priority for the United States. Um, and that's in part because of, uh, as Frank made in his opening remarks, the uh, the devolution of the Japan, uh, Korea, South, uh, South Korea, Japan relationship over the past few years. Um, as that relationship has soured, uh, North Korea continues to launch ICBMs uh, into the Yellow Sea or Sea of Japan to talk to about another issue that Frank raised. Um, China has run military exercises uh, around the Taiwan Strait. And so this area of the world is not getting any safer as these two countries um, re-engage this long-held historical dispute. So um, I would hope that just as the Obama administration placed uh, pressure on both Park Geun-hye and um, Abe Shinzo back in uh, during the, the Obama administration, the Biden administration too would would focus a bit more of its attention on on, uh, on resolving this. Um, obviously, the U.S. can can exercise quite a bit of leverage over both of these countries if it wants to. Right, we underwrite their security, uh, and we've played a similarly conciliatory role when it comes to wartime issues in Germany, in France, in Austria, and Switzerland. Right, so there's plenty of precedent for the United States playing this kind of role. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that. Um, part of the problem itself, and, and by problem I mean the 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 the, the widespread uh, concern or widespread recognition in East Asia that Japan uh, didn't pay its fair share for war reparations. Um, that too, I think, stems back to uh, a role the United States played during the negotiation of the San Francisco Peace Treaty. Right, we were so eager to get to re to rehabilitate Japan, so eager to have a bulwark against communism in Northeast Asia um, that we waived our reparations vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese, and we encouraged many of our allies to do the same. Now, of course, every state then had its own bilateral negotiation. Uh, some, such as the Dutch, insisted on payments. Um, others, such as the Chinese, didn't. Uh, the South Koreans, as, as many on this call already know, um, were able to get some amount of economic support that ultimately, as I think Dan just mentioned, went to POSCO. Uh, in the form of grants and loans. Um, but but I think the, the fact that the United States tried to um, 
sort of uh, smooth over or, or not fully expose Japan to uh, or, or make Japan pay uh, back at the back in in the 1940s, 1950s, in a sense, foreshadows the, the dispute we're having right now. A second point I'll make, um, and this again uh, iterates something that that Frank mentioned in his opening comments, is that uh, these issues of forced labor, these issues of comfort women, uh, have been resolved many times in the past. Uh, with the comfort women, probably less satisfactorily, um, and we can talk about that in the Q and A. Um, but with regards to forced labor in particular. Uh, a, a series of lawsuits, dozens of lawsuits filed in Japan from the 1990s forward, uh, now over the past 20 years filed in South Korea, and that ultimately led to the 2018 decision that Frank mentioned in his uh, opening comments. Um, early on in the 1990s, when these litigation, when these lawsuits were sort of still fresh, um, a handful of Japanese companies, um, including Nippon Steel, one of the two companies in 2018 that the South Korean Supreme Court ordered to pay Korean forced laborers, um, they came up with settlements, right? So in, in the contribution I made to this, I looked back at those settlements uh, on the one hand involving Korean forced laborers, on the other involving Chinese forced laborers, and tried to tease out some of the common themes that might be appropriate for a um, more lasting reconciliation on the, on the larger scale that seems to be demanded by these 2018 decisions. So obviously paying money is going to be part of it. Um, an apology and, and the wording of the apology is extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily sensitive. And I think that's something that perhaps the, the, the current negotiations are grappling with. Um, the, the, the Japanese companies have were, were adamantly opposed to apologizing to Korean forced laborers. When it, come to China, when it came to Chinese forced laborers, they were uh, sometimes a bit more willing to, to make apologies that we would recognize as an apology where you specify the blame, you express remorse, you acknowledge liability and so forth. Um, so that, that piece of it, I think will continue to be difficult. And I'm curious to see if, uh, as Dan mentioned in his remarks, they, there is, uh, you know, the UN and, and Kishida uh, administrations are able to come up with a, uh, a resolution to what extent, you know, I'm sure there'll be a financial component to it, but it's the, it's the wording, it's the apology, it's the acknowledgement of harm and so forth and the, the, the acknowledgement of remorse uh, that will be, I think, very difficult for both sides to, uh, to come to or come to a resolution on. Um, but Mitsubishi, the other company, has also issued apologies to forced labor to Chinese forced laborers as well as to American POWs. There was a large sort of grandiose ceremony at the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles in 2015, where uh, Mitsubishi representative bowed and and uh, made the kind of apology that any Korean forced laborer or any heir of a Korean forced laborer would would love to see. I think replicated in Seoul. Um, finally, uh, the, the, the prospects for the ongoing negotiations, I'm a little bit less sanguine, I think, than Dan was, um, uh, about the, the prospects of the Yoon and the Kishida administrations coming to this, uh, and, and coming up with a, um, a sensible and satisfactory solution. That's in part because of the 2015 comfort women agreement. Uh, I thought, and never mind what I think with the UN and, and many other commentators thought was fundamentally flawed. Um, I, I wonder to the extent that these governments um, have learned from that, and, and also the extent to which these governments are willing to engage in a, a discussion and an agreement that can be that that almost certainly is going to be criticized. Right? Um, I saw reporting last week, and I think maybe Dan was referencing this in his comments that um, Korean companies would contribute to the fund, and that fund would then 
be paid out to Korean forced laborers. And um, maybe that's all that's possible right now, but I would, I would really strongly urge against that. And in 1995, Japan launched something called the Asian Women's Fund, um, which was uh, an attempt to handle or to deal with the comfort women issue, not just with Korean comfort women, but Filipina, Taiwanese, Chinese, et cetera. Um, and there, uh, the, the Japanese government did issue an apology, but the funding came from Japanese citizens. And many comfort women rejected that. They said, I, I will not take that deal. I will not take that money um, because the money needs to come from the Japanese government in the form of reparations, not from uh, private citizens in Japan. And so I worry that you know if this money comes from a Korean company or, or POSCO or something like that, a similar critique can be mounted, right? This is not true reparations. This is just a, a cheap way uh, for the Japanese government to make a statement, um, but the, the payment from it actually comes from the Korean side. So uh, I look forward to the debate or the discussion. Um, and thanks again to USIP and to Frank for including me. Thanks, Tim. You mentioned the comfort woman issue, and Alexis has uh, written a lot about that, but also particularly for the essay that she contributed. I'd uh, love to hear your uh, additional thoughts, Alexis. Great. Thank you. And thank uh, USIP. Thank you, Frank. I think it was uh, nearly a year ago when we had our first in-person meeting for two years that you sort of said, hey, we got to do something. We've really got to work to give uh, Korea and Japan a fresh uh, a fresh footing. And so I do, I understand the emphasis and appreciate the emphasis on the quote unquote future oriented nature of these statements. You know, that comes from the 1964, 65 groundwork when, uh, when Reichauer was even using and interjecting that term, uh, prior to the normalization agreement. Uh, and I also, however, have to agree with your suboptimal, uh, observation because for a host of reasons, not in the least. I do have to get my Aso Taro criticism in here. Uh, Aso is just a very, uh, very powerful politician. So I understand that from a Japanese domestic politics uh, perspective. And yet at the same time, the Aso family fortune is built on uh, no small way on Korean slave labor in the Aso mines. And so, you know, in addition to that, this is a man who is known to have donated funding to throw Adolf Hitler birthday parties in recent years. So this is just a rather um, strange face to put on the negotiations if we're going to have buy-in on a broad scale, which has to happen. More importantly than just my, you know, harping on one politician's face is the Obuchi Kim summit in 1998, which has been oft-referenced as something that uh, especially President Yun uh, campaigned on, that he wanted to bring back the spirit of the Obuchi Kim 1998 agreement, which ushered in the era of cultural sharing. And, you know, Dan, you raised the significance of soft power. That is a huge accomplishment in 1998, right? Because prior to that, it was actually kind of, you had to buy ripoff of, you know, you had to buy pirated copies of music from one another country. You couldn't watch mutual television, let alone live, let alone stream on Netflix. So oh, the Obuchi Kim summit brought us world cup of all things, you know, that was huge. That came on top of 10 years of really difficult, hard diplomacy that was primarily surrounding the issue of comfort women. And it was, it was the catharsis that 
all that all these voices had come out in the wake of Emperor Hirohito's 1989 death that really brought these these issues to the fore in a new way, a democratic civil society way. And the problem is right now we are at the opposite kind of situation. We've got a decade of diplomatic unraveling, which I would place on the governing you know, administration of Abe Shinzo and his efforts from the moment he came back into office to target the comfort women, uh, the Kono statement in particular. So we're in optimal, uh, suboptimal conditions. And, and because I really agree when Dan says, you know, you can't look at a future for oriented approach without um, acknowledging history. And you have to be able to stand on a past that is not a past built out of quicksand. And so I just, that's why I'm still deeply frustrated that we keep cycling in this. And I appreciate Frank very much your your emphasis on we need to make what we are analyzing and researching clear to policymakers. And we need to do this with an eye to actually recognizing that the suffering lingers. And so the victim-centered approach that we all keep talking about has to be recognized. So I'll just, my three points are pretty clear. First, words matter. What we call the victims has to accord with the reality of the, excuse me, of the suffering they endured. In the summer of 2012, when then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton made clear to the Japanese government that as far as the United States government was concerned, what we're talking about when we talk about the, the horrendous euphemism of comfort women is the crime of sexual slavery, militarized sexual slavery, specifically in Japan's historical case, state-sponsored sexual slavery. And these words remain absolutely critical for policymakers to understand why the issues endure in such a, a contentious fashion. The Japanese government, as such, has not taken state responsibility for a crime that involved every state apparatus at the time to affect and organize. And so that's the critical nature of including that term, that it is a crime of militarized sexual slavery that the United Nations in 1996 declared a crime against humanity is why we will continue to use that term, not only, not at all to target Japan, rather to recognize how this suffering goes on today. We have already seen reports of Russia's actions in the Ukraine rounding up targeting, specifically targeting women and girls and dragging them across back to Russia. So this is why we focus on the criminal nature and the global transnational enduring nature of this, which brings me to my second point. So too frequently is this history portrayed as a Japan versus Korea event could not be further from the truth. This was an empire-wide transnational history that began first. The first known victims are Japanese from Japan in 1932. And so we have to recognize that this was, this was even known before other victims were involved. It's come out later because we had to find the evidence to prove this. And we now have these historical documents that demonstrate the targeted rounding up of minor children, of women, of young men from Korea, China, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, the Micronesian islands, including Guam, Australia, so far, not Australia, excuse me, but the famous 
Australian victim was in Indonesia. But this was empire-wide, and it needs to be understood that way, especially to understand how the transnationality of it at the time is what we seek to uh, understand today and how to work to prevent ongoing instances of this crime against humanity. Um, and this actually brings me to my final point by segue, because most recently in October, the Philadelphia Art Commission approved uh, the, the construction during the coming months of a new comfort of a peace statue on the Philadelphia Peace Plaza. And they overwhelmingly approved the statue. They wanted broader wording on the plaque to make clear the transnational nature and enduring nature of this particular crime. And so that brings me to my final point, the significance of the peace statue, which keeps arising as a thorny issue. And interestingly, uh, during the Yun presidency has become a dividing center in domestic Korean politics. I mean, we know that President Yun rode in on a wave of, of you know, some people call it anti-feminism. I would even call it an anti-woman uh, understanding. And so the those forces come to the peace statue and express their hate at those who have supported uh, the victims of this crime against humanity now uh, for several, for, well, since the 2011 uh, construction of the initial peace statue. But the reason that this statue must uh, be left in the hands of civil society and not used as a, a, a sort of chip, negotiating chip between governments, is precisely because this, these, you know, these issues of what to do with memorials have come into the, you know, come into much discussion around the world in recent years, uh, but statues as such. But in other countries, everywhere, the conversation is about perpetrators of crime. The government of Japan is the only government in the world seeking to remove a victim statue. And that really underscores the outlier nature of denialism in this particular uh, weaponization of history. So again, I thank, uh, I thank you, Frank, for allowing us to you know, try and really make the points that a lot of us have been working on for years matter anew. And thank you for your effort. Thank you so much, Alexis. Uh, I, I'm going to turn to Jonathan, uh, who hasn't submitted an essay yet, but I heard your proposal and I, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, so I'll let you speak a little bit more. Well, thanks very much, Frank, and uh, and thanks to uh, the USIP for for organizing this. Uh, look, I mean, a lot of interesting perspectives already from the panel, so I'll, I'll try not to to repeat uh, many of them. But I think one of the panelists, perhaps Dan, mentioned this at the onset. Um, we're at a very challenging time right now. Um, we're probably in a recession if it's not going to get uh, worse. Um, we're still we still have a lingering pandemic that lots of us wish it was over, uh, but uh, but uh, is still continuing. Um, at the same time, we have Russia's war in Ukraine um, and uh, the strategic competition with China happening all at the same point. So I think this is a testament, Frank, to you and your colleagues that, that you've taken up this very important issue um, amidst all of these challenges, because I think it is very, very important that we have this discussion. Um, to talk a little bit about the angle that I'm focused on, um, and I agree with you, I think one of the important ways to look at the Japan-Korea relationship um, is to Traditionally, there's been what I would call two tracks uh, of discussions. 
Um, one track, and I think we've had a very good discussion, robust discussion already this morning on this is, is you're fundamentally right. There needs to be some, uh, some movement, um, and resolution, uh, on historical issues. And that's not going to be an easy, easy fix. Uh, I would agree with Dan that we're in an interesting moment, uh, right now, uh, with, with leadership on both sides that at least seems open, uh, to the idea, but there, you know, there's the glass half full version, but there's also the glass half empty version, um, um, risk aversion, I think, remains high on both sides, uh, in addition to uh, political difficulties on both sides, which uh, I think has been mentioned before, is is not necessarily uh, have anything to do with the bilateral relationship, but is domestic politics uh, in both South Korea and Japan. Uh, so those are the realities. Uh, there is uh, optimism. I think there's more discussion happening, uh, both at the track one level uh, and also at the track two level. Um, but making that into the reality of, of some sort of lasting agreement, I think, is, is something that we are not quite there yet. So I think that's something to keep in mind. What, what I'm focusing on in my research is, as I mentioned, these two tracks. One of them is the historical track. The second one is the one that we talked about uh, on security cooperation, which is, you know, many people in D.C. Uh, constantly are, are focused on looking at quarantining the security cooperation, for example, on North Korea uh, between the United States, Japan, and South Korea. I think that we've sort of been stuck in this two-track approach for a long time. So what I've been looking at uh, through some of my research is looking at a third track. Um, and the idea that we, uh, we only drive one track, one road at one time, uh, and, you know, that there's one silver bullet solution, I think clearly is not realistic. We need to have work, uh, which I think a lot of the discussion this morning has been on uh, to resolve some of the historical issues. Of course, we need to continue to work trilaterally, but we can't just think of these as an either or track. Um, and so this third track that I've been looking at is enabling uh, and providing more agency to Japan and South Korea themselves. So again, this is not to say that the U.S. has been a, a challenge or, or a problem uh, in, in the trilateral relationship, but there always seems to be an expectation. I mean, on this panel, we can talk about this potentially afterwards, but how many articles, and we're all probably guilty of it ourselves, of, uh, of, about the U.S. coming in to be the mediator on, on historical issues, uh, the importance of trilateralism on North Korea. I mean, it, it always seems the default answer um, that the United States uh, should take some sort of key um, important role. I'm not dismissing that the United States does have that, uh, that uh, important role, but I think that we need to think a lot more creatively. Uh, so one of the areas that, that I've been putting some attention to is Japan, Korea X. So in that X, not always being uh, the United States. So where can we look at other partnerships? And I think there is a moment right now, uh, a window, a political window with, with the UN administration and the Kishida administration in Japan uh, to look at third partnerships. Um, and this is not uh, all framed about uh, containing China and, and finding different ways to, to work with the US Indo-Pacific strategy. But for example, looking at partners uh, in ASEAN, uh, looking at partners um, in in Europe and finding ways where those two partnerships, it, it, it's not necessarily that they have an identical regional strategy, but finding ways where they can start discussing things outside of these two tracks that are so traditional. 
um, which are which is the the security cooperation track for the United States uh, and the historical uh, track that the United States has sometimes taken a role on, sometimes not taken a role on. So this is the this is the the main component that I'm focused on is looking at this Japan Korea X and just one example of this um, before I sort of pass this off to moderated discussion. I think the most fertile would be thinking about some of the regional issues. Um, uh, an example of this is uh, South Korea's uh, southward strategy in ASEAN, Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, they may seem sort of uh, antagonistic in a political sense, at least over the past few years. But the reality is if you go under the, under the sheets and look at uh, what they pro both prioritize uh, on infrastructure, on climate security, on so many different issues, there's 90% overlap uh, between Japan and South Korea on all of these issues. So rather than working against each other or working uh, at opposite poles, uh, why not find ways for Japan and South Korea to be working together with third partners in the region to provide international goods? So in, a clo in closing on this is that these tracks, by no means are they isolated. We absolutely need a uh, resolution on, on the historical matters. Uh, we still need, uh, I think it has been obvious from the past week with 25 ballistic missiles being, being fired from North Korea, uh, we still need cooperation with the United States, but we need to be more ambitious and creative and thinking about providing agency. And, you know, it's not our, it's not on the, the United States or any other country's um, decision block to, to provide that agency. It's on Japan and Korea to do that themselves, but to find ways to work together with, with other partners in the region. I think for too often, there's been this over-reliance on, on thinking about the only partnership could be trilaterally with the United States. So that's, that's, uh, that's the basis of, of what I've been focused on. And, and again, I do salute you, Frank, and, and your, your team for, for putting together this really important discussion. Thanks, Jonathan. It's interesting because several of the authors mention uh, the U.S. playing a greater role in helping to facilitate or mediate the situation. And so I'm glad you introduced the, not necessarily a counter argument, but just the, the additional um, view that uh, both South Korea and Japan have agency themselves to take control of the situation and the potential for other X countries to also have an important role. Uh, last, we're gonna turn to Nathan, go ahead. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, USIP. I'm uh, honored to speak with this uh, uh, distinguished panel of experts. I would, I'm hoping to contribute what I know as a practicing attorney uh, who has been uh, litigating international arbitration issue. So my contribution uh, in my essay for the USIP, what I try to do is write a type of what lawyers call a bench memo which is a memorandum that a judge's clerk might put together uh, before coming to a case to lay out issues for both sides, what issues uh, remain open and how, um, how, likely, how certain result is likely uh, if a judge ends up deciding one issue one way, another issue another way. So that as to, uh, of course, that um, speaking about the forced labor issue and how it relates to the, the series of treaties that both South Korea and Japan entered into in 1965 to normalize their relations. So the basic position of Japan currently is that the 1965 treaties normalized the relations between two countries and settled reparations for Korean forced laborers by paying compensation. And the basic position of South Korea 
is the opposite of that. And between these positions, you can see three um, issues that make this particular issue very challenging. First is that the 1965 treaties themselves deliberately left behind, left open key legal ambiguities. And those ambiguities are left open deliberately for the sake of achieving essentially a political agreement. And then in the intervening decades since 1965 to present, both South Korea and Japan radically switched positions as to how to interpret the 1965 treaties. And then finally, also in the intervening decades, international law evolved in the way that de-emphasized national sovereignty and emphasized vindication of individual rights in a way that um, a tribunal constituted today might end up having a different uh, result from a tribunal that hypothetically could have been constituted immediately after the entry of the treaties in 1965. So let me explain explain a few, a little bit more on those three issues. I don't have a whole lot of time to dig very deeply into it, but I'm happy to go with, uh, dig deeper into any one of these issues during the Q&A session, but let me stay at a high level. So first, uh, the key legal ambiguities, the treaties, do not define whether Japan's annexation of Korea in 1910 was legal or illegal. And that uh, has a number of downstream consequences as to how to characterize Korea's independence. Another key ambiguity is whether Japan's payment of money to Korea in 1965 was a compensation that settled claims in exchange or a simple gift or an economic assistant assistance that has nothing to do with the claims themselves. So on the latter point, this takes us to our second issue. For a long time, for several decades, between 1965 and late 1990s, Japan's position was the money was a gift and the claims were not settled. And around early 2000, it's precisely 2001, Japan made a 180-degree turn on its position to come to today's position, which is that money was compensation and the claims were settled. And South Korea, again, had the opposite turn. After 1965, South Korean government's position was that money was compensation and the, and the claims were settled. And then... Since then, in the 21st century, South Korea's position has been that the money was not compensation, the claims were not settled, which is what, which is how we are at this present stage where South Korean Supreme Court has uh, issued several decisions that is, uh, essentially say those things, that the money was not compensation and claims were not settled. Finally, we have the evolution of international law. And this is a, a very esoteric point and I may mangle it because I'm not a I'm not an academic I'm a practitioner uh, especially in the presence of an academic like uh, Professor Webster I may mangle it but I apologize in the best in advance but essentially this since 1965 international law moved towards emphasizing human rights such that where there is ambiguity in treaty texts, 
the, the arbitrators and uh, the interpreters of international law tend to fall on the side of vindicating human rights rather than mechanically insisting on uh, the principle of Pakistan Sarbanda, uh, the promise must be kept, which uh, tends to serve more on the side of national sovereignty, uh, on the side of national sovereignty and the ability of nations to nations to determine the claims or or um, dispos uh, make dispositions of a claim held by individuals. This complicates the interpretation of the 1965 treaties where the signatories of those treaties at that moment in time may have had a different idea of international law compared to the arbitrators and judges and lawyers um, who are approaching this issue and uh, interpreting, these, um, interpreting these treaties in light of the evolution in the international law at the present day. So the ultimate point I want to raise out of all this um, is uh, um, it would be an echo of a point that several people on uh, several people on this panel has made, which is that there needs to be a resolution that is centered on the victims and their sensibility of justice. There is, I think, in at least in some corners, some type of um, either misplaced hope or too much uh, too too much optimism in the idea that a lawsuit will settle this once and for all or the international law is so clear that it'll be uh once it goes once it goes to arbitration it'll be a walk for one side or the other and that'll be the end of everything and both parties will shut up forever that simply does not work the reason why this issue continues to persist is precisely because the voice of the victims of Imperial Japan's forced labor is not centered. The reason why there was a radical change in the interpretation of the 65 treaty between South Korea and Japan fundamentally is because in 1965, when South Korea entered into these treaties, it entered it um, through the Park chung dictatorship, um, which could not care much about the, the sentiments of the victims. So, it, so when the individual victims of in, in Imperial Japan were, became, came to be in the position to raise their own voice in a liberal democracy, in a wealthier country with a strong rule of law um, that, that is designed to give voice to individual victims, South Korea started changing that stance. And then Japan, in response, began to, uh, changing their own stance to avoid, essentially to avoid liability. One legal scholar um, decried it as interpretive acrobatics. So the idea that there will be, if there is a law, there could be a, if there is a law, if there just was an agreement between the political leaders of the two countries, that will be uh, termed final and irreversible and all kinds of fancy legal language uh, stamped on top, simply will not work, will not persist as long as they do not resonate with the sense of justice with, uh, victims of, uh, with the victims of forced labor. And that would be my lawyerly advice to the parties involved that litigation does not solve all and, and
And it ultimately, in, there needs to be a resolution on the level of hearts and minds. Thanks, Nathan. Um, and I want to thank uh, all the speakers because I know that you had very nuanced, complex arguments uh, that you had in your essays and was asking you to to abridge it and put it within uh, a short amount of time. So thank you so much for doing such a great job in doing that. Um, before we get to our discussion, I want to provide my first reminder to our audience that if you have a question, please put it into the chat box. Um, I'll, I'll remind you again a little bit later, but I want to provide the first reminder now that you can start thinking about it and start putting in some of the questions. We have a couple already, um, but that's your reminder for right now. Uh, I know, Alexis, you have to leave at two, so I'd like to turn to you first, uh, going back to the, the sexual slavery issue, because, you know, so much of the discussion has been on forced labor, and, you know, one can make the argument the recent tension, the proximate cause was the 2018 uh, Supreme Court decision on the forced labor issue. But at the same time in 2018, President Moon Jae-in uh, made the decision to basically basically pull back from the, the comfort woman dream from 2015. So that was also one of the proximate causes that led to the tensions. But it's unclear where we, where we stand on this issue. I think there's at least one pending court case in South Korea on comfort woman. Um, the, 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 the 2015 agreement, that's, that agreement seems to be in limbo. Um, there's maybe a, a dozen or so women that are still alive. And it seems like a lot of the, the battle has shifted to the, uh, to the statute and, and 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 the Japanese government confronting the statute. But where does this issue um, stand and where does it play in terms of resolving the overall tensions? So that's a multi-layered question uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, I, I appreciate how you're saying that as the victims increasingly die or the, 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 the survivors increasingly die, uh, that the battle has been outsourced to the statue. And um, I think that's something to, to consider because when you talk about what's the proximate cause of the current moment, the proximate cause goes right back to when the crime occurred, as far as I'm concerned. And I mean, we just have to recognize that in the particular history of victims coming forward uh, concerning militarized sexual slavery, there was such a, a, a period of time in which the victims did not find a space in which to speak. And so I know you don't want me to go way back into history and jump in, then into the 1990s and stuff and want a clear answer. The problem is there isn't a clear answer. It's it's just a, it's, it's so ongoing and building. And I, I look at it this way. In uh, you know, and I, we're not getting into the textbook issues at, at hand. But if you had been a sixth grader in Japan in 2002, for example, you would have had a pretty good ed education in militarized sexual slavery called the Comfort Women in Japanese in your Japanese middle school, taught by your Japanese middle school teacher. You will not have that today because it's all been government directed, taken out of the textbooks. And so these, these, you know, this, the Kono statement gets made, then there's great controversy throughout the 1990s about what is Japan's position? Is it official? Is it not official? Then we come into an entire new era in which Abe's in charge and we have all of this. And, and I just say all this because it's the 
the yeah, it's the Japanese government says one thing, the next administration pulls it back. And so you look at this as an ongoing effort that uh, ultimately has ended up targeting all of Koreans as to blame for even raising this issue, which is just the worst possible way to get to understand why this issue needs to be approached differently. And I'm sorry that I'm running sideways around your question, but again, I really think about this as a teacher, because as a teacher, you know what you want to convey to your students, but if you're talking about middle school curricula, for example, there's a required body of knowledge to a test. And you're now in an era in which there's nothing about this history on required testing in Japan. And even the term comfort women has been taken out, targeted, so that we're back to the language of willing prostitutes in some cases. So it's really quite egregious how the terminological shifts are shaping knowledge, but these are all Japanese government directed. And, and so, you know, once again, and I understand in Washington, there's a really, I find a little racist expression of Korea fatigue, but it's just, you know, when is this going to be addressed in a way that takes seriously, the victims are not just clamoring for money, not just, you know, griping about something ongoing, but rather there's an ongoing pain to those actually victimized. And there's an ongoing real frustration to all of the activists, researchers who have thought they're making, you think they're making gains on behalf of the survivors only to be slammed back into the 1980s, back to the future all over again. And that I really do take back to Abe Shinzo round two, when he came in 2012 and said the first thing he wanted to do in his second uh, prime ministership was to target the Kono statement. And so we can look to 2015, we can look to 2018. I think we really need to look at 2012 and also look at the other things that Abe's study groups wanted to do, not limited to, but including the judgment of criminality at the San Francisco trial, which was Abe Shinzo's ultimate goal, was to de, you know, delegitimize the judgment of criminality against Japan. So I apologize for not having the direct answer you want, but I think there, I think it just goes back to when the crime occurred and the constant backpedaling from agreements. And that's on Japan. Uh, no problem, Alexis. Uh, and I actually encourage all the, the panelists, um, if you have other things that you want to talk about, because I'm just throwing out ideas to get the discussion going. But of course, you probably have thoughts on what the other panelists says. So please feel free to address those as well. But I'm glad, Alexis, that you brought up the issue of education. And I'll, I'm going to turn to Dan on this, because Dan, you've written about how, you know, the idea of putting together joint textbooks wasn't successful between the two countries. But the idea of looking at supplemental education, comparative education could be potentially promising. So any thoughts on what Alexa said or anything uh, the other panelists said, Dan? <laughs> a lot of thoughts, but, um, and I, I'd like to come to the comfort woman issue in a second, but on the textbook question, actually, I was just, just talking about this to, to my class this week. Um, you know, the, the, this goal of, a joint textbook, which comes out of, uh, first of all, looking at the Franco-German experience of creating a joint textbook, which Koreans have uh, translated the entire Franco-German 
textbook as an example, and it certainly was there in the earlier efforts by UNESCO to create these dialogues uh, on about textbooks, including between Japan and Korea. It's a bit of an elusive goal. In some ways, it interferes with more realistic goals, um, which are, I think, you know, what we tried to do in the Divided Memories Project at Stanford was to do comparative studies of the textbooks, and then there were created supplemental teaching materials out of that so that people can sort, students can see the same events through multiple lenses and see that, uh, you know, the uh, looking at these issues through the eyes of the other is actually a pathway to reconciliation rather than a formal agreement that says we agree how many people were killed in Nanjing uh, what was the exact nature of the uh, mobilization of forced labor? I mean, those are worthwhile goals, but sometimes they interfere with the being able to understand how things look for other people. And I found in the classroom that that's a, a really revelatory experience, including for college students uh, who just aren't aware of these things. Um, I, I want to, at the risk of getting Alexis mad at me, um, you know, the Comfort Women Agreement so I, I had the opportunity in uh, this summer to uh, to get to Seoul finally for the first time in a while. And I spent a lot of time talking to a number of people in the government, outside the government, who were working on trying to come up with uh, uh, proposals for the forced labor issue. So I feel pretty confident I know somewhat what their thinking is, particularly inside the government. They're well aware uh, of the failures of the Comfort Women Agreement of 2015. Um, the senior foreign ministry official who was in charge of this process said to me that uh, he was very critical of the agreement uh, because it did not uh, gain the, uh, uh, the consent and agreement of particularly of the Korean Council uh, of Women. And without that, uh, it, it, it simply never gained the legitimacy uh, that it should have gained, uh, that it should have had. And, and that is certainly to some degree the basis of when the Moon Jae-in government came in, and of course the, the Min Joon-dong, the Democratic Party in Korea, had always opposed the agreement on that basis. And they came in with that critical view as well. Uh, it's interesting that the current conservative government shares that view. So on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, I do know the people who ran the uh, implementation of that agreement and worked very hard on it. And they point out that the vast majority of women survivors accepted the payments and the apology that was somewhat attached to it, um, and, and, as well as some family members. Uh, and actually, most of the funds that were allocated by the Japanese government to the, uh, as a result of that agreement, were in fact distributed. So... And the Moon government, when they came in, they said, President Moon said, well, we don't, we don't agree with this uh, solution for the reason I said, but we accept that it exists and we're just going to move ahead on that basis. Only later, after coming into office, did they turn around and basically effectively dismantle the agreement. And I think that was mainly in response to you know, domestic politics. Uh, the anti-Japanese issue is a powerful issue in Japan, in Korea, and it was in the midst of a fair amount of controversy that was going on about North Korea policy. I think it was, there was some degree of political calculation involved in doing that. As a result, it 
it made it very difficult to deal with the forced labor issue because the obvious model for dealing with the forced labor issue is to extend that kind of agreement to forced laborers. So the people who are now dealing with this issue, and it comes back to some of the things that Tim was talking about, they, they, they're well aware of, A, they have to get the consent of the victims and their representatives. So when they formed this advisory committee, which they did in the summer, it included the lawyers uh, for the for the victims, and they know they have to do that. They know there's no agreement that they, they can just impose without that. Uh, and those and those the victims and their lawyers have made it clear they will not accept an agreement that doesn't involve Japanese companies paying money into whatever compensation agreement, and doesn't involve some clear expression of remorse. And I agree with you, Tim, that the language of that is a very important issue. Um, so everybody understands that. The, the Japanese government position is not clear, but from what I understand, uh, they're mainly obsessed with this idea. This comes back to what Nathan was talking about. 65 agreement must be recognized as being legitimate. Uh, and in fact, President Moon and President Yun both have said that. So they, in some sense, they've gotten what they claim they want. Um, so it has to accept the premise of the 65 agreement. And then the Japanese government, basically Japanese companies will do what Japanese government tells them to do. Um, that's the reality. So if Japanese government says, okay, you're now free to provide money, they'll do it. And the, in the case of the Chinese suit against Mitsubishi, J Ch Mitsubishi paid compensation to the Chinese forced laborers without any uh, objection from the Japanese government, in part because there's no, it didn't contradict any formal treaty, other treaty or agreement between Japan and China regarding reparations and so on. And I, and uh, there were some very important people, friends of mine who were involved in that. Uh, I think the same thing can happen in Korea, but it requires the Japanese government basically clearing the way for that to happen. That's what they're talking about now. I think Kishida is really penned in by the Japanese right wing, uh, and he's he's a he's a he's a weak leader, I, I have to say, and and so expectations that he would depart from the Abe, you know, pathway uh, have not been met, and he it may well be he shares those views, or it may be that he's just politically too weak to do it. But we'll see. And the people involved in the negotiations are really, I think, they're working really hard to get a deal before the G seven meeting when Yun and Kishida may have a, a meeting. And, uh, and I, I, I really, I, maybe I'm overly optimistic. I, I, I plead guilty to that, but I happen to, I mean, I have a sense that the people involved want to make this happen. It, I don't downplay at all the obstacles that are there. And I just want to make one last point about the U.S. It's not, look, these, every agreement, including 65, including comfort women, this one. It, Japanese and Koreans are the ones who are doing the heavy lifting here. It is not an American creation. But at the end, you know, we are the big dog here, and we are providing security for everybody. So American intervention, at, particularly at key moments at the end, can sometimes be catalytic and help people overcome when they reach loggerheads, and I don't want to get into details of the 2015 thing, but I, I have a pretty good idea of what role the U.S. played at that point. It's not that we do it, not that we created it, 
but we, let's just say, the United States played a, a very important facilitating role. I, I don't think, I think that's probably going to be true this time as well, if we can find our pathway, the narrow pathway, to some type of progress. If, if I, I could just add one quick thing before I run away, because I don't want Dan to think I'm mad at you at all. Jonathan may be more upset with you for the last comment. I don't know. Um, but uh, the what I just want to say is what I'm not disagreeing about the 2018 moment is if we just keep doing the most recent time something unravels, we're just never going to move forward. And I think that's my sense of trying to focus on, you know, these, these, uh, let's remember when we talk forced labor, the, Sex slavery is a different history. It is technically a subset of forced labor. It is sexualized forced labor. It is forced rape. It is entrapped people doing something against their will. And so when we talk about it, it is obviously you know, understood as a discrete moment. But I think we need to understand we're talking about a whole host of horrible things that happened. And um, so just constantly going back to the last thing that we did wrong, I think only makes things worse. It tightens the knot. Thank you. And thank you so much, Frank. Sorry to jump off early. It's been Uh, thank you so much, Alexis. Uh, you cut off a little bit, but that's okay. Appreciate your participation. I'm going to turn to Tim uh, because Dan referenced some of your, your comments. Um, so please feel free to respond to him. But also my question um, gets back to your essay and you talk about three elements of successful conciliation agreements, right? Um, compensation, commemoration, and an apology. Do you see those elements uh, present in a potential agreement that seems to be bubbling. Of course, we don't know what the agreement is, so it's hard to say, but um, what do you think uh, might be there? What do you think is the hardest part of the, of the three elements that you discussed? Sure. Um, thank you. And, and Dan, I appreciate that. You're much uh, closer to government actors and, and have insights that I don't have, uh, I don't have access to. So I appreciate your clarification. Um, <clears throat> I think if we look at the 2015 agreement, um, uh, the comfort women agreement that's been referenced many times, that's maybe some indication of what a forced labor agreement would look like. And again, it also sounds again, based on the comments that, that Dan just made that, uh, the Korean side would, would look at that and, and would realize that it didn't, um, it didn't, uh, fulfill certain, uh, requirements or conditions that, uh, Korean comfort women <clears throat> and forced laborers have been making for quite some time now, which is, uh, and, and, uh, unconditional, um, unequivocal apology. Um, one of the, one of the points I made in the, in, in my own research is that, um, there has been, it's been easier for Japanese companies to apologize to Chinese forced laborers, uh, than it has been for Japanese companies to apologize to Korean forced laborers. And I think, uh, from the Japanese perspective, and it's not one that I necessarily agree with, but it's one that's been stated, uh, is that this was legal right? This forced labor campaign that brought between 900,000 and a million Koreans from the peninsula to the Japanese archipelago was accomplished through a law, right? Through the 1938 national conscription or uh, the national mobilization law. And then a, a specific conscription, conscription order that dealt with South Korea and, or Korea, I should say, colonial Korea in particular. Uh, and so the, the Japanese, 
uh, companies. And, and again, they, they've, they've said this in the dozens of lawsuits that have been filed against them, both in Japan and in the United States and in Korea, um, is that they were just doing what the gov- government did for them, right? This was, this was a, uh, a conscription order that the, that the national legislature at the time passed, and uh, they were essentially helping out the war effort. And so therefore they can avoid legal liability because they were doing what uh, what legislation told them to do. Uh, whereas with, uh, with Chinese forced labor, it's, um, it's not a law. It was a cabinet decision, uh, that, that brought, you know, 40,000 Chinese laborers over to South Korea. Um, I, I think where the, where there, there is, I think, uh, disagreement is that yes, even if the, even if the, the process by which the labor was conscripted and transported to Japan occurred through a legal, uh, a legal, um, edifice through this law, I just referenced, um, the treatment in Japan was often abominable, right? So people were beaten, people were starved, people were, uh, uh, inadequately housed, uh, you know, weren't able to communicate with their families and so forth. Uh, and so what, what is important, I think, is that even Japanese courts that have looked at this, and even when Japanese courts have dismissed this, um, they've still said that conduct itself, right? The treatment in Japanese mines, in Japanese factories, violated Japan's own legal system of the 1930s and 1940s. And so I think um, a focus on that to say, yes, you're right, the the labor itself may have been conscripted or mobilized through a legal edifice, but what we're talking about is what happened to the Koreans in your custody in Japan. That's what what we're asking uh, compensation for. And I think that's, that's one way um, maybe to thread the issue. Um, You know, will, will uh, an apology be forthcoming? We haven't seen one yet uh, when it comes to, to, to Japanese companies, right? The, the government, as has been stated, ha- have offered uh, various forms of apology, but um, I, I have not, and, and I, I could be unaware of it, but I haven't seen one that it comes from a Japanese company to a Korean forced labor or a group of Korean forced labor. So that's that's one issue. Um, and then uh, commemoration, I think, um, and I think the textbook issue that both Alex, uh, that both Alexis and, and Dan raised would be one way to do it. Um, but in some of these lawsuits from the late 1990s, one of the one of the uh, questions from the uh, the crowd from the audience here has been recent initiatives, and there 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 hasn't been, to my knowledge, a recent initiative that suggests that a settlement is a is a is a possibility. You know, from the at least from the past five or six years, these um, settlement agreements go back to the 1990s, and there. Um, the issue itself was a little bit less high profile. I think it might have been viewed as a bilateral issue as opposed to a global issue. And now, I think with uh, with Comfort Women, it is certainly uh, a regional, as uh, as Alexis was saying, a transnational or global issue. And I think the the forced labor issue itself. Um, you have the ILO, for example, the International Labor Organization, finding this violated uh, international covenants in place or in effect at the time. Um, and so, I, I think, uh, given the fact that there's so much more attention. Uh, to this issue, I think the Japanese are even less willing or more reluctant um, to, to offer some kind of um, holistic settlement to it. But again, um, I'll, I'll refer to uh, Dan's optimism that maybe there is, um, you know, expert negotiators who are who are uh, on the ground and, and able to um, cajole uh, Japanese companies into making a, a more fulsome apology and into making a more um, fulsome platform of apology slash commemoration than uh, we have seen, or at least I have seen from the past 25 years. 
Thanks, Tim. Uh, we have a, a little less than 20 minutes left, so I, I do want to get to the audience questions. Um, if, if you're listening in, uh, please feel free to type in a question in the chat box. Um, but right before that, I, I do want to give our other two uh, panelists, Jonathan and Nathan, uh, a chance to chime in on anything. I'm not going to ask a specific question to give you the opportunity to talk about whatever you'd like. So first, let me turn to Jonathan. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks again, Frank. And, uh, you know, excited to get to audience questions. So I'll be, be brief. Um, but a couple of thoughts just on, you know, what the, what my fellow panelists have been saying as well on, on the comfort women agreement. Um, but some of the other challenges, I mean, a lot of great insights. Um, and I think to be honest, it highlights a lot of the, uh, the thoughts that have been mentioned by several fellow panelists that when, when thinking about reconciliation, there's multiple tracks and multiple trains that have to be uh, driven. There's not one necessarily silver bullet approach. Um, and I think we we saw that in many ways, um, in 2015, but just a perspective, I think, uh, quickly from 2015, uh, especially from a Japanese perspective, um, we heard uh, from Dan as well, the United States role, which I think was important at, at the last stages. Um, and we've also heard uh, some of the dissatisfaction from the South Korean side, um, especially from civil society with that agreement. And I mean, I can definitely empathize with, uh, with some of their dissatisfaction with it. Uh, that being said, I think it's also important to, to understand the perspective from, from Japan uh, in the lead up to that agreement as well. So I think many, many viewed that agreement um, when it came out, uh, uh, probably particularly from the South Korean side and maybe several even in the United States as as maybe underwhelming um, and not nearly as robust as, as they expected it to be. But on the Japanese side as well, um, just put yourself in the shoes of Abe Shinzo at the time, who, who is a conservative leader, uh, was a conservative leader at the time, but um, actually had more right-wing leaders within his Liberal Democratic Party. There was there was still immense pressure, despite his political capital in Japan, uh, to move forward with an agreement like that. So th there, I'm not saying that you know we should absolve the Japanese because of that, but I think that we have to contextualize that this at the time um, was no easy uh, deal to strike in, in Tokyo either, um, uh, despite the fact that we may view it as as insufficient um, and regardless of that point in 2015 when both foreign ministers stood up and, and agreed to it um we can say it's it's insufficient um but there was a sense at the time that from a government perspective uh the issue had been resolved that being said i think it goes back to this point that and i think nathan and others have brought this out that you know there we have to think about multiple tracks of reconciliation and if we're looking for one agreement by two foreign ministers to be uh, the final resolution to an issue i think we need to be thinking uh, much more ambitious much more broadly. So I'll leave it at that uh, point and uh, excited to get to some of the audience questions. Thanks, Jonathan. And then lastly, Nathan, uh, I, I think you had one of the hardest jobs in your essays because you are breaking down very complex uh, historical and legal issues in a way that would be digestible to the general audience. So I, I really appreciate that, but it's, obviously it's hard for you in trying to get that across. But any, uh, any final broad thoughts from you? Sure, yeah. I, let me just comment on one thing, one sort of um, thing that sort of contextualizes all of this and why uh, Korea-Japan relationship has been particularly difficult even in relation to Japan's um, other war crimes committed against other countries. And it's because of this. Korea is, uh, is in a different situation vis-a-vis -vis Japan compared to other countries 
like, say, the Philippines or uh, Indonesia, places where um, they where uh, they suffered extensive Japanese invasion by uh, during the imperial time, but in but during World War Two. In fact, Korea is in a slightly different position, even vis-a-vis -vis China, because simply because and the difference is this. The whole of Korea was colonized in 1910 by Imperial Japan. Korea was the first colony of Imperial Japan. Um, so Okinawans may uh, disagree with me, but uh, you'll, have, uh, you'll have to excuse me a little bit there. As far as uh, 20th, 20th, uh, 20th century style, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, style imperialism goes, uh, Korea is the first meaningful colony that Imperial Japan had. That complicates the legal question downstream. And, um, and Tim uh, referred to this a little bit, and this complicates the, the forced labor issue in a very direct way. Um, excuse me. So, for example, uh, if now, if the annexation, the colonization of Korea was legitimate, then it's legitimate for a country. It's legitimate for a country to conscript its own citizens towards this war effort. Treatment of those conscripts may be subject to a more generalized international law standards. But regardless, there is a great uh, there is a greater leeway for a country to handle its own subject, own citizens' own subjects. But if Korea was a colony. It was an occupied territory. It was, it was a sovereign country that was under occupation uh, by Japan for a long term. Then the conscription is itself illegal, regardless of what the Japanese government, what kind of decree the Japanese government had um, had made at the time. And this is how, for just one way in which the ambiguities in the Basic Treaty uh, has this downstream consequence of how to characterize this forced labor issue and uh, makes this issue just uh, very difficult to resolve in the present day. Thank you very much, Nathan, for pointing that out. Um, we have about 10 minutes left, so I want to get to the audience questions. Um, let me turn to the first one. It's, it's a very specific question from Mindy Kotler, and she asks, which Japanese company used the most Korean forced laborers? Um, she said Mitsubishi, which had an informal scene in the war type cabinet, used the most American POWs. Uh, I'm not sure if people uh, have an answer to that specific question. Certainly among the most. Uh, they're, they're the, for what it's worth, Mindy, and I appreciate the question. Uh, Mitsubishi has been the most sued, the most often sued of the Japanese companies in both Japan and Korea. Um, who actually has the most? I would reckon it was probably either Mitsubishi or Mitsui. Um, and again, those are enormous companies uh, with with many different affiliates that whose corporate structure I cannot explain to you. But um, I would imagine that it was probably uh, either Mitsubishi or Mitsui that were the the chief uh, among many others right there are there are you know dozens if not more perhaps even 100 there i think there were 135 japanese companies that use korea uh, use chinese forced labor um I'm, i don't have the statistics off the top of my head for uh for korean forced labor but certainly mitsubishi and mitsui were, were two of the chief uh users of korean forced labor uh, next question is from uh, Professor Arrington, who, uh, and I think uh, Tim kind of tried to answer it a little bit, but I'll just ask it again so anyone else can answer. Uh, 
Can you cite uh, or discuss recent evidence of appetite for settlements that, uh, similar to what Tim described, um, among the Japanese government and LDP, uh, not necessarily Japanese firms, uh, and then also among the Korean victims, uh, their lawyers, and their supporters? Um, quick answer. I mean, the, the, there is a process in Korea. There was a uh, an advisory council that was formed. It included the lawyers, although then they objected to the Korean government pressing the Korean courts not to move ahead with the seizure of assets. Uh, but there definitely is deep engagement on the Korean side uh, in trying to move towards some type of uh, a settlement or agreement on this. The Japanese side is a little more murky. Um, the LDP, certainly there's a lot of opposition in the LDP to any kind of agreement. Um, and you can hear that vocalized. Uh, the I appreciated Alexis's comments about the, the rather profound irony of having Mr. Asso uh, recently in Seoul. I don't think he was negotiating this issue, but he was meeting with Yun, uh, given his past history. But he's the kind of figure in the right wing of the LDP for whom, w without his backing, an agreement doesn't take place. I think the feeling I, I have is that the foreign minister, Hayashi, he was formerly head of the Japan-Korea parliamentary uh, organization. He has a long engagement with Korea. Uh, he was uh, he has a good personal relationship with the South Korean foreign minister, Pak Jin. Um, that he's very interested in making this happen. That's my sense. Um, I think the mystery figure here is Kishida. Uh, he was the foreign minister at the time of the 2015 agreement. He has a long, so he has, uh, you know, some history here. Uh, there's a good side to that in that he knows the issues uh, and he's been through this before. Bad side is he supposedly doesn't want to repeat the experience of, of, in their view, making an agreement, which then the Koreans repudiate. So there's that kind of mantra in Japan that, you know, you no point in making a deal because the next government will just throw it out. So I think the Japanese side is much, we the interest is much weaker. And that's why I think the American influence has much greater significance. Koreans don't need to be told why this needs to be done. Maybe the Japanese need to be reminded of it. Um, uh, what was the other part of the question? I forget. I think that was it. Just one question, basically, any recent appetite for this type of conciliatory agreement amongst the Japanese side, but also amongst the Korean uh, victims, lawyers, and supporters. Uh, it's important to understand. I know Nathan knows this very well, and, and Tim also. You know, the sort of Damocles hanging over this is the, finally, the Korean courts moving ahead to implement the judgment that they've made and seizing the assets of Japanese companies. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. There's no necessarily necessary time limit, as far as I understand, that to happen. But if it happens, then all bets are off. It's interesting you raise that point because um, there was a point where, in, I think in August, people were expecting a decision related to the forced labor issue, and it was postponed. And I read in one article that was because uh, one of the prosecutors in the case had retired, but that was in August, and now it's uh, mid-November. Um, so it's a little interesting to see what might happen. One question, actually, for the, the, the legal experts in the room is, what happens in the case where an agreement is reached by the two governments, but not all the plaintiffs 
support that agreement and they want to, for example, continue with the court case. I'm not sure exactly how that situation is dealt with. I don't know if um, Tim or Nathan have any thoughts there. So actually, let me just ask a quick question to uh, Dan, somewhat related to that issue, because there is one sort of aspect uh, from the Jap from the Japanese perspective that always that uh, that never uh, that I could never really understand because even as I I might disagree with them I understand at least where they're coming from for the most part but this one particular area I, I was completely baffled by which is this expectation from the Japanese side that the Korean courts will simply do what the Korean president tells them to do the idea that well. The, we have an agreement with the president, so therefore the Supreme Court should not move forward with the execution. If I were litigating a case and the president told me that I can't execute, I can't execute a, the case that a, a judgment that I've already won, I would cry foul. Right? I think anybody would. Uh, any, anybody would in a democratic country with separation of powers. Well, what answer? I'll take the first whack at that, if I might. I don't want to cut you off, Dan. Um, but I, I think, uh, Nathan, it's, it's a good point. And, and Frank, your question is well taken as well. Um, I think we also need to look at this in light of the fact that for three to four to five years um, after the... So that we, we talked about the 2018 decisions, right? Where they or a verdict said, you know, pay these Korean forced laborers $100,000 US. That comes, obviously, as you know, at the heels of a 2012 decision, uh, also rendered by the South Korean Supreme Court, that said um, th these companies are liable, right? Then it gets sent back to the lower courts to determine uh, how much the judgments should be worth. And and the the political nefariousness, Nathan, to get to your point, comes from the fact that Park Geun-hye told the South Korean Supreme uh, uh, Chief Judge of the South Korean Supreme Court to sit on the judgments, which he did for three years, right? And of course, uh, she was indicted, he was indicted. Uh, and so I think, yeah, in a democracy, you're not supposed to have that, um, but you just had that in South Korea, right? So I think, uh, and so the fact that, yes, maybe um, uh, some uh executive branch political actor in South Korea might have done the same thing. Well, you might say, well, that, that goes against separation of powers, but you just say, well, CF 2015 to 2018, where the exact same thing happened in the exact same case. Right. So I think, I think maybe if we look at it that way, that may provide some explanation for, I mean, you're right. And, and this gets to Frank's question as well. Um, the, the government uh, says we have an agreement, but, uh, and this, this speaks to the, the, point that Nathan was making in his remarks, um, we have seen in, in among liberal democracies, at least, much greater attention to individual rights, rights of victims, human rights. And there's uh, you know dozens of lawsuits we could talk about in Italy, in Greece, in uh, South Korea, in Japan, Germany, and so forth, where that individual human rights perspective has arisen and 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 uh, and gotten traction, um, but uh, you know the, the the governments also have a role to play. And um, in in the United States, uh, when European forced laborers sued uh, German companies in in the 1990s, uh, the agreement was the the State Department um, would weigh in with an amicus brief in the future. So they said, look, we're going to have a global agreement. We're going to, the, the Germans are going to put in $5 billion for a forced labor fund. And that will deal, that will spell the end of all uh, current and subsequent litigation, 
right now, you know, can somebody can print a European forced labor file a suit right now and say that I never got the money. I don't want to. Yes, he or she could. Um, but then the state department is going to step in and say, Oh, sorry, we, we litigated this. We've already dealt with this issue. The, the Germans put together the remembrance fund that was seeded with $5 billion of cash from the German government and, and the German corporate sector. And so we are, we are encouraging you judge so-and-so to dismiss this case, um, as you know, race, maybe not race judicata, but as something that's already been settled um, through a political agreement uh, between the United States and Germany and with a, a German fund. So I think, yeah, in, in, a, in, a, in a system where there are, there are independent courts, um, uh, I think the, you know a court could still take the case, but that court would then receive um, amicus briefs or, or other um, encouragement, we'll say, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or from the State Department that they should uh, dismiss this case as something that has already been settled by prior agreements. Interesting. Dan, so and Dan, I cut you off. So one, one issue, which is, as far as I understand it, the sole district court or a sole district court made a made a contradictory decision uh, on the forced labor issue. And I don't quite understand how that works. I mean, in the Korean court system, um, but they said the 65 agreement remained in place and had settled the issue, which by the way, was also somewhat the conclusion of a, of a commission that was formed in Korea under the, at the end of the, uh, uh, um, uh, Hyun administration, at least in partial, partial case, Nathan shaking his head. But anyway, I don't really understand how that, those contradictory court decisions are dealt with in the Korean system. Maybe you can explain it. I'll just, I'll just be very, I'll just be very quick. The, that district court decision is simply absolutely correct in a sense that it just flatly contradicts the Supreme Court case. There's no uh, way around it, and that's. And then, uh, as to the the commission, there was uh, the prime minister's report uh, was uh, was heading that heading that commission that specifically addressed it's interesting. There's a lot of legal questions that come up about, you know, what the Supreme Court has can address non-justiciability and and uh, precedence in, in in civil law cases uh, or civil courts, uh, civil law systems. Um, we don't have the, the time to get into that uh, and we are out of time. But I did want to ask one last final question, um, which gets to kind of goes back, harkens back to uh, uh, Abe's death in, in recent months, which is uh, again from Minnie Kotler. Um, how do you weigh current foreign policy challenges and, of course, the importance of, you know, countries like Japan um, versus what many perceive as Japan's uh, uh, historical revisionism, right? You have these two competing issues. Uh, how do you weigh those types of issues? It's, it's, it's a very meaty question, not something that we can probably address very quickly, but um, want to throw that in there before we wrap up. Frank, I can uh, take the first cut at that. Um, so uh, the cardinal rule of diplomacy is is not to think in binary terms. Um, so, you know, it, it's a very good question, but I, I, I would suggest that we need to be thinking not in an either or an or uh, state, but uh, again, as I mentioned in the original um, comments, that we need to be driving down two or three tracks at the same time. I mean, uh, unless tectonic plates uh, change and geography shifts quicker than we think it will, uh, Japan and South Korea will be uh, in the same neighborhood 
dealing with the same challenges, the same opportunities uh, in foreign policy terms uh, for, for the next several centuries. Uh, that does not mean uh, that we should not be having the discussions that we're having today and, and looking for concrete resolutions on history. But I think that we cannot live in this fishbowl mentality where we just uh, you know assume that Japan and South Korea don't have shared interests. I think, frankly, we're going to see this more and more over the coming decades. Uh, and this is not necessarily the United States um, you know, pushing this down the throats of its two East Asian allies. One example that I'll, I'll, I'll give you and leave you on this point is South Korean uh, public polling on perceptions of China. And a lot of this goes to uh, the, the economic coercion that South Korea felt after the imposition of the fat battery um, and the economic boycotts of Latte and others in, in, in China. Frankly, those perceptions are, are bad uh, and they're getting worse. Um, and this is not a problem that the United States created. Uh, Japan also feels worried about many of these challenges. So I'm only using that as one example to say that there are areas in shared interest terms where, where Japan and South Korea by themselves, even without the United States, uh, um, have commonalities. Uh, and it's okay to pursue those. Uh, but this needs to be done at the exact same time uh, that we're working on the historical issues. So that would be not an either and or choice. I think you have to do them both at the same time. You know, I, I always have one thought about this, which is that, you know, security interests, foreign policy interests, those can shift and change and they can create imperatives and drive to some degree people to, to confront issues. But history matters. And there is a long history here uh, between Japan and Korea, and it's deeply rooted in the identities of, of, of the people in these nations and in and that express to their governments and you cannot escape history that's just my fundamental belief dan that's an excellent way to to end the roundtable discussion um I do want to thank all of you for, for providing your insights and our audience for joining us. Um, I want to remind the audience that there are excellent essays if you want to read them in full uh, on the USIP website on uh, creative approaches to resolving South Korea-Japan tensions. I encourage you to go there and, and read each of the essays. They're excellent. Um, and again, thank you for joining in. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.